This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of my dear friend, David Fleischman, who is going to celebrate his wedding next week. May the Almighty shower you and your Kala, Miriam, with blessing, prosperity, joy, harmony, and peace. This week is Parsha's Vayakhel. Now, because this year is a leap year, we have two months of Adar. Therefore, this week's Parsha Vayakhel and next week's Parsha Pekudei are separate. In most years, they're actually lumped together. This year, they're separate. Our Parsha has 122 verses and one mitzvah. And this is going to essentially be a mirror of Parsha's Teruma. A few weeks ago, we had Parsha's Teruma, and that gave us the instructions to construct the Mishkan and its vessels. The following week was the instruction to construct the various vestments, garments of the high priest. That was the instruction phase. In this week's parsha, there's going to be the implementation, the actualization of that instruction, where Moshe is actually going to do all the fundraising and do all the construction that was delineated a few weeks ago. And of course, one of the themes of the parsha that we'll talk about is the need for the Torah to repeat it in detail, almost uh, some sentences word for word from what the instruction uh, that was given a few weeks ago, whereas normally the Torah tries to mince words and try to say things in as succinct and pithy a way as possible. In this week's Parsha, almost the whole Parsha could have been shortly summarized in a sentence like Moshe actually did what he was told to do, and instead the Torah found the need to actually go through and delineate thing by thing, what Moshe did uh, together with his uh, lieutenants, Betzalel and Aliyah and the rest of the Jews. So the Parsha begins where Moshe assembles the entire assembly of the children of Israel and says to them, these are the things that Hashem commanded to do. So Rashi uh, right away rehashes his position that these these most recent Parshios are not written chronologically. The Golden Calf episode that we read last week happened before the instructions of Parshas Truma Tetzava, before the instructions to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and its vessels, and the vestments of the high priests. But the Torah altered the chronology, as it often does, in order to separate the instructions and the implementations of those instructions for the tabernacle to separate that with the story uh, in, in the middle of the golden calf. So when did this happen according to Rashi? This happened the day after Moses came down from heaven for the third time, like we saw last week. He comes down with a second set of tablets. That is Yom Kippur. The following day, there's the instruction and the implementation of the instruction to start fundraising, assembling the materials needed for the Mishkan for the tabernacle. The Ramban, he argues like he did right in the past, and he says, no, the Torah is actually organized, at least this part of it, in chronological order. The instructions were given before the golden calf. And now that they were forgiven for the golden calf, the Torah reiterates the implementation to kind of tell you that even though they were found defective via the sin of the golden calf, Still, they had repented and they had restored themselves to the situation where they were prior and therefore they were worthy now as prior to fulfill the mitzvah of the tabernacle. So according to the Ramban, there's a certain natural answer to that question of why the Torah found the need to repeat it. Well, because now we're being told that they didn't lose anything, so to speak, with this in the golden calf. There was no lasting impact, even though the instructions, the initial instructions were given before this in the golden calf. 
And then they sinned and they descended and they were almost destroyed. Still, the repentance brought them back to a state as they were prior and therefore they didn't lose anything along the way. Now, interesting, like we saw in the past, juxtaposed to the instruction to build a tabernacle is another warning against the desecration of Shabbos. On six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, you shall be holy, a whole day for God, a day of complete rest. Whoever does work on this day shall be put to death. And then we're told specifically, you shall not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day. So again, like we saw in chapter 31 last week, even though there's a mitzvah to build the tabernacle, this mitzvah does not supersede Shabbos. You cannot do this work on Shabbos. And here our sages tell us, Rashi points this out again a second time, that this is another source that the prohibitions of Shabbos mirror what is needed to be done for the construction of the tabernacle. So our sages tell us in the Talmud that there's 39 different categories of work that need to be done for the construction of the tabernacle, and therefore there are those same 39 categories of work that are prohibited to be done on Shabbos. Interestingly, the Talmud tells us that this is also the source that prohibits punishment and execution on Shabbos. When there is a Jewish system of courts in place, part of their responsibilities is to mete out judgment, to mete out punishment, both corporal and capital. And on Shabbos, those things are suspended. The court does not dispense, does not mete out capital punishment or corporal punishment on Shabbos. Now, there's an interesting story here with the Chafetz Chaim, uh, the great sage of the early part of the, of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century. And the story goes that uh, he was living in Russia at the time before the communist re- Bolshevik revolution. And there was a man who had a very wealthy man who had some factories that were open on Shabbos. So the Chavetz Chaim, the leader of the Jews, sent him a message. You should close your factories on Shabbos because it's Shabbos and Shabbos is the day of rest. We don't work. You shouldn't work on Shabbos. So the man responded to him, well, I I earn every Shabbos 4,000 rubles. I can't lose that out. So the Chavetz Chaim, the great sage, quoted him this verse. The verse says, on six days work may be done. But on the seventh day shall be holy for you a day of complete rest for Hashem. And he explained that this is a conditional, that when do you work for six days? When do the six days of work, when do they flourish? They flourish when the seventh day, when the day of Shabbos is an off day. That was his message to this factory owner. And the man responded, he says, listen, I, I have factories and my factories are going to be operational. And I don't care what the verse in the Torah says. I'm not closing my factories on Shabbos. So sometime later, the communists, the Bolsheviks, they take over Russia. And what do they do? They nationalize all industry. And they come to this man and they grab the keys of his factories and they take it all, take it all over. And in fact, he had to flee town and he barely made it out alive with nothing but the shirt on his back. And he sent a letter to the Chafetz Chaim and said, yes, you're right, indeed, my factories do hinge on the verse in the Torah, you were right, because I did not cease working on Shabbos, the six days of work did not have blessing. Now, Rashi points out that, you know, we have 39 categories of work on Shabbos, and only one of them is mentioned specifically, not to kindle a fire in all your dwellings on Shabbos. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, why... 
are we not told any of the other uh, 38 categories of work that are prohibited? Why specifically we're told not to kindle a fire on Shabbos? Why is that singled out? So Rashi quotes uh, the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that there are two reasons why uh, in the Talmud, two arguments, two opinions as to why this particular category of work was singled out. According to one is that the reason why it was singled out is to tell you that this has less stringency, the, 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 the category of work of kindling a fire on Shabbos has less stringency than the rest of the other 38 categories. Alternatively, the reason why kindling a fire was mentioned specifically was to tell you that you don't need to transgress all 39 categories of work at once or in one Shabbos in order to be liable any one of them alone, even if you did just one, even if you just kindled the fire on Shabbos, that would be enough to make you liable. Now, it's interesting. We know there were several sects amongst our uh, people's history that decided that they want to obey only the written Torah, not the oral Torah. And the most recent one of these uh, factions is the Karaites, who were really popular 7th, 8th, and ninth century. And then, of course, they petered out. And today, there's not really much left of the Karite movement. But their philosophy was that we obey only the written Torah and we disregard the oral Torah, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the tradition. That does not hold water in our eyes. And therefore, what does the verse say? You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day. You should not have a fire in your house on Shabbos, meaning that there should be no fire or fire source in your home on Shabbos. So they would sit Shabbos in pitch black darkness because even if you light the candle before Shabbos, by their standards, it would be insufficient. And in fact, there is a tradition today to have hot food for Shabbos lunch, meaning it's already more than halfway into Shabbos and you still have hot food. Well, how do you have hot food Shabbos lunchtime? The only way you could do that is if you have a fire that you kindled before Shabbos and that fire, upon that fire, you placed the stew or whatever it may be. And therefore, the fire continues on Shabbos. As long as you don't kindle, as long as you don't initiate the fire before Shabbos, you're good to go. And we've accustomed to show that we're not like the Karaites. We believe that you can indeed have a fire on Shabbos provided that you didn't kindle, you didn't ignite it on Shabbos. That would be okay. And that's why we go out of our way to have hot food on Shabbos lunch. Now, the Bet Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who was, of course, the giant of the 16th century, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, he wrote... Uh, several books. One of them, the one that's maybe the least well-known, is the Magid Meisharim, which, which is essentially a book, a diary of the conversations he had with, with an angel who came to visit him every night. And the angel told him that this verse not only doesn't support the claim of the Karaites, but it actually proves to the contrary. How so? What, what, on verse 2, we're talking about Shabbos. Six days you work and the seventh day, well, that's Shabbos. That's a holy day. That's a day of rest. That's a day for God. So what happens in verse 3? You shall not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day. Why does it need to add those last words, beyom ha-Shabbos, on the Shabbos day? After all, aren't we just talking about 
Shabbos? Why is there a need to reiterate in verse 3 that you cannot kindle a fire on the Shabbos day? It must mean, says the Magid, says the angel to Rabbi Yosef Karo, it must mean that only on Shabbos is there a prohibition to ignite the flame, to ignite the fire. However, if the fire was extant from before Shabbos, you would be allowed to keep it on on Shabbos, which is why we have lights on Shabbos, and we could you could even leave uh, a, a stove on. So long as you don't ignite it on Shabbos, it is okay. Okay, so we have this preamble that Moshe is gathering the Jewish people, and now he tells them before anything, don't do any work on Shabbos. And then he says, okay, time to fundraise. Moses said to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, saying, this is the word of Hashem, that he's commanded us, take for yourself a portion, fundraise. And of course, it's the same list of materials that we've spoken about the past couple of weeks, gold, silver, copper, different kinds of wool, linen, gold here, various skins, the wood, the oil for illumination, the spices needed for the incense, and the various stones needed for the aphod, for the apron-like garment, and for the breastplate. Now, there's an amazing Ramban here in verse 5, he says, he points out that throughout the entire portion, it talks about the heart. People who committed their heart, people who have righteous heart, people who have wisdom of the heart. And he says something very fascinating. He says, the end result of the Mishnah, of the tabernacle, is that God's presence, God's Shechina dwells there. Says the Ramban, this does not happen on its own. Rather, each individual who's contributing in some way to the project is investing their heart, the seat of the Shekhinah within them, the the kind of the spiritual spark that we each have within us, in our soul, in our heart. Each one of them is contributing that towards the project and the collective sum of the hearts of all of Israel. That's the Shekhinah that indeed dwells in the tabernacle in the Mishkan. Very powerful idea. So Moses conveys the message. He makes the clarion call, the fundraising call for the tabernacle. And he also reaches out and tells people that we need uh, manpower, people who are skilled to do all the work. And he delineates the various vessels needed for the Tabernacles. We spoke about them, the inner altar, the outer altar, the, the kior, the, the basin, the ark, the shulchan, the menorah, all the various things that we've spoken about the last couple of weeks. So uh, Moshe has conveyed the message. Again, he wants people, manpower, uh, personnel, talent. He wants also materials needed to do that. So every man whose heart inspired him came, and everyone whose spirit motivated him brought the portion of Hashem, for the work of the tent of the meeting. Indeed, after Moshe's speech, the people, they rallied to the cause for the labor and for all the sacred garments. There's a very powerful Ramban here in verse 21. Again, he's talking about the fact that their heart inspired them and everyone whose spirit motivated them. So what does this mean? What is this power, this ability, these talents that are uncovered? So the Ramban, and this is similar to what we said last week uh, about B'tzalel, he said that people have their heart, so to speak, motivate them, inspire them to the work. Again, like he said last time, these are people that until very recently were essentially slaves. 
they don't have a background in uh, all this fine uh, m- metallurgy, all this precise craftsmanship. These aren't journeymen, co- uh, contractors, carpenters who have all this experience. So where did they learn? There wasn't a teacher. They didn't go to, to some school to learn how to do this. They had no one to guide them. Says the Ramban, each one of them found internally, they had this discovery of uncovering unknown talents that they didn't even know that they had. Because they had ambition, because they their heart inspired them, they had ambition, they had determination, and they discovered that they actually do already have it within them. They took initiative. They were opportunistic. They were bold. They put themselves out there and they discovered that, you know what? They could figure it out. Why? How did they figure it out? Because naturally they had the ability. They just didn't know that they had the ability. They took initiative. They were bold. And eventually they were able to figure it out and discover indeed that they could do it. They do have those latent talents. And this is another idea that, of course, we could speak about more broadly, that the people who are the ones who make it big in whatever field, it could be of course, in business, and it could also be spiritually. The people that actually make the impact are the ones that don't wait for someone to guide them, to mentor them, to coach them, to hold their hand and take them step by step. They're the ones who take action, who jump in, who dive in, who say, I'll figure it out along the way. And you know what? Along the way, they'll actually discover that the talents that they needed were already within them. They just didn't know it. And by taking initiative, by being inspired in their in their heart, they are able to uncover tremendous latent ability that they didn't even know that they had. So the people are ready and then they come with the donations. The men came with the women. Everyone came. Everyone's heart was motivated them. They brought bracelets and nose rings and other rings and bodily ornaments, all sorts of gold ornaments. Every man raised up an offering of gold to Hashem. People who had with... Uh, in their possessions, various kinds of wool, the turquoise wool, the purple, the scarlet wool, the linen, the goat hair. Everyone brought what they had, the copper, the the wood. Everyone who had was able to bring what they had. Every wise-hearted woman in verse 25, we read, spun with her hands. They brought the spun yarn of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, and linen. And there's a very interesting Rashi here quoting from the Talmud. Rashi tells us that uh, the reason why they needed uh, wise-hearted women to do the spinning, you know, spinning, it seems like it's a commodity job. Everyone could do it. So what's the big deal? He quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says something very interesting that when they would spin this material, this fabric out of goat hairs, they would do it uh, when the hair was, was still attached to the goat and they'd make fabric and yarn with a live goat and spinning its hair. And that, of course, is a, is a talent that you need something, you know, some wise-hearted people because it's a very special talent that is needed. And why would they do this? One of the commentaries tells us that there's a certain special luster that is present when something is connected to its roots. It's almost like the bi-local movement. You know, if you take something, some produce from Mexico, you bring it to the United States or from New Zealand, it's it's not in the right environment. The, the thing that's closest to its source, that's when it actually has its its greatest potential to be perfect, to be beautiful. And therefore, the, the luster of this particular fabric was best when it was spun on top of the goat itself. So the people really responded to Moshe's call. 
And everything that was needed was indeed brought. And in verse 27, we read how the leaders, the Nisim, the heads of the tribe, they brought the Shoham stones and the stones to the settings of the ephod and the breastplate. Like we spoke about a few weeks ago, there were 14 very precious stones, 12 that were inlaid in the gold settings of the breastplate of the Choshen, and two on each one of the shoulders by the shoulder pads of the ephod of that apron-like garment that connected via a gold chain towards the uh, the chest of the high priest, towards the Choshen. So we have these 14 very precious and very expensive stones, and they are provided by the Nesim, by the heads of the tribe. There was an amazing and very maybe somewhat puzzling Rashi here about these Nesim, about these gifts that we received, that the Jewish people, that the Mishkan effort, the coffers of the Mishkan, the coffers of the tabernacle received from the Nesim, from the heads of the tribe. So Rashi tells us that in the book of Leviticus, there was another fundraiser. And in that fundraiser, it wasn't the Nesim coming at the end. They weren't coming at the end, the last ones to give a donation. Rather, they came at the beginning. Why did they come at the beginning? Here, after everyone donated, only then do we read about the Nesim, the leaders, giving the various stones needed for the uh, for the Choshen and for the Aphod. Why over here did they come at the end and there they went at the beginning? Because here they had a plan. They made a calculation. What they say? He says, well, they said, you know what? We'll let the community, we'll let the people donate whatever they give. And whatever's left over, whatever they don't give, we will cover. What happened? The people gave everything. They were so generous. They gave all the gold and all the silver and all the copper and all the various wools and fabrics. Everything was donated and there was nothing really left besides for these 14 stones. And therefore, the Nassim, they were worried, we have nothing to give. So the only thing that's left, they quickly jumped and they gave those 14 stones. And Rashi says this was a mistake. They made a mistake. They should have given ahead of time. And the Torah, how the Torah spells their name, it spells it in a way that indicates that they made a mistake. How so? Because in Hebrew, this may sound a little strange to someone who's not familiar with Hebrew, but in Hebrew, there's sometimes different ways to spell the same word. And the reason for that is, just like in ancient, just like in English, we have consonants and we have vowels. In Hebrew, the vowels sometimes are written in the form of letters, but sometimes they are not written in the form of letters. Rather, they are in the invisible nikudot. So if you learn Hebrew, you learn that on top and on bottom of letters, there's various dots and dashes that represent the vowels that tell you how to pronounce a certain word. Now, the word nisim, which means the leaders or the princes or the presidents of the tribes, it usually is spelled with all the vowels written in the form of letters. But here, when it's talking about the nisim and their donation of the 14 stones needed for the ephod and the choshen, it deducts one of the letters from their name. Says Rashi, why does the Torah remove one of the letters from their name? Because they should have jumped ahead. They shouldn't have waited to the end. They shouldn't have tarried. They shouldn't have been lazy. And therefore, as a way for the Torah to criticize them, a letter is deducted from their name. Very interesting Rashi here, quoting from the sages in the Midrash. Now, I think there's at least two central 
questions here. Rashi tells us that they made a mistake. They should have donated ahead of time. They shouldn't have waited. We'll cover what no one else covers. They should have believed in the generosity of the people. But I don't understand. Their plan, it seems like it worked to perfection. They said that we'll cover what, what no one else covers. And indeed, no one else gave those 14 stones and they gave them. It seems like their plan actually worked out very well. Question number one. Question number two. It seems like from Rashi that the criticism of them is in the fact that they did not donate in the way that was proper. They should have donated ahead of time. Well, if so, the word in the Torah in which the criticism is levied against these Nesim should have been the word Hevil, which means they brought, they donated. You could have deducted a letter from that word. Why does the Torah deduct a letter from the word Nesim, the word that means the presidents, the princes, these leaders? So I want to suggest uh, maybe two answers. Answer number one, perhaps, is that, indeed, what was lacking was not their donation. The donation was very generous. In fact, like we said, these 14 stones were very expensive. They're very rare, very precious. It was a very generous gift that they gave. However, their leadership was flawed because they should have done what a leader does. A leader is someone who inspires their, their constituents who initiates and says, this is what you do. You follow my lead. Moshe comes and says, give a donation, give gold, give silver, give all these lists of more than a dozen things that are needed for the tabernacle. What these leaders should have done, they should have taken a little bit of gold and a little bit of silver and a little bit of copper and a little bit of this wool and a little bit of linen and a little bit of goats here, a little bit just to show everyone, this is what you do. Yes, your gold is precious, it's very expensive, but you know what you're supposed to do? When Moshe comes, you give. And then the people would have said, oh, this is what we do. They were they would have been trained by their leaders and they would have emulated them. And the, the total sum of the gift, that that's not really the criticism. The criticism is that the fact that they came late, they came afterwards. They only did it after their constituents already gave, and therefore the constituents did not follow them, and therefore there's something lacking in their leadership qualities. So the first thing we see here is that a leader has to initiate. Secondly, maybe perhaps the criticism against these Nisim, against these princes, presidents of the tribes, was the fact that they did not recognize the character and the nature of their constituents. A great leader is someone who's invested in the betterment of the people that they are leading. And in order to be able to guide, to help your charge, to navigate them through the challenges of life, you have to know their qualities and you have to know their flaws. And here their leadership is flawed because they said, there's no way the Jewish people, they're not this generous. There's no way they're going to give this much. We'll just make up the difference. We'll let them give and whatever they don't give, we'll cover your leadership is flawed because you did not realize how great these people are, how generous they are, and therefore we're going to deduct a letter from the name that talks about your leadership because your leadership is lacking. And you know what? They learned their lesson, and when the next call came for a donation, they jumped ahead, they went first, and they A, initiated, and B, they did not rely on their followers to be, la- to be lazy, to not be generous because they recognize the generosity of those that they were leading. 
And just on this last point, there's a great story. It's told about the great Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was the spiritual dean of the Mir Yeshiva during World War One. That whole region of the world was in a very chaotic situation, and the Yeshiva kind of disbanded. Several years later, once things quieted down, the Yeshiva reconstituted. And this uh, a yeshiva, essentially, of 300 new students just emerged. After three months, the great pedagogue, the great sage, Rabbi Yochum Levavitz, he declared, there's 300 students in the yeshiva, and each and every one of them, I can tell you, their central good character. What is their best, most defining character trait? And most of them, I can also tell you what is their worst, what is their negative central character trait that they need to work on. That is indeed the mark of a great leader, someone who is completely attuned to the character and thus to the needs of the people that they are leading. So with all the material assembled, Moses says to the children of Israel, See, behold, Hashem has proclaimed my name, Betzal, the son of Uri, the son of Hur from the tribe of Judah. This Betzal is so talented, he's filled with godly spirit, with wisdom, with insight, with knowledge, with every craft. He is a true Renaissance man who is able to uh, be an expert in all the areas and all the craftsmanship. He weaves design to work with gold, silver, copper, stone cutting for setting, wood carvings, everything to perform every craft of design. He has the complete package. And he also has the ability to teach. This really, there's no better candidate to lead this effort. Him, together with Ahaliyav, the son of Ahisamach, from the tribe of Dan. He filled them with the wise heart to do every craft of the carver, weaver of designs, embroiderer, the, all the wool, the linen, the weaver, the artisans of every craft, and makers of design. So there's a few interesting things here that we see. First of all, one of the commentaries points out that not only did Bitzal have the ability to do all the work, but he was also able to mentor. And this is interesting. Sometimes the people who have all the talent, they just, they're so talented and to them it comes so naturally, they don't have the ability to convey that to someone who is uninitiated. Bitzal was that rare combination, like we said, a Renaissance man who had all the skills and all the knowledge and all the ability to, in all these various disparate fields, but also had the ability to teach that to others. He was also able to mentor to others. It's also interesting here, Bitzalel, we get him, we also get his father, Bitzalel ben Uri, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. Hur, of course, we saw him a few times already in the Torah. He is the son of Miriam, so he's the nephew of Moses. Thus, in effect, this is Moses' great, uh, great nephew or great, great, great nephew. That's uh, Bitzalel. And uh, Betzalel's pedigree is given all the way back to Hur. So that we don't hear only about his father, we hear all, also about his grandfather. Whereas Ahaliyav, who is the other person who's leading the effort, we're only told Ahaliyav, the son of Ahisamach. We don't get his grandfather. So how come with Betzalel, his pedigree goes all the way back to the, his grandfather, whereas by Ahaliyav, it goes only to his father? So I saw two answers here. Number one, we know that Hur, he had recently died. Why? Because when the Jewish people were doing the synagogue calf, he was one of the leaders appointed by Moshe to keep things in order. And he started to rebuke, to criticize the people. What are you doing? What's going to be? Well, you're making a golden calf? You're making an idol? Are you crazy? So he started to critique them. And they killed him. Thus, there is no greater representation of the flaws of the sin of the golden calf than Hur. 
And therefore, what happens? What do we have? We have the golden calf. What's coming to fit that? That's the tabernacle. It's so fitting that the grandson of Hur, he's the one who is going to provide the atonement, so to speak, for the murder of Hur, for the sin of the golden calf, which is represented by the murder of his grandfather. Alternatively, the Meshachachma, he quotes in the name of the Chassid Yaivitz. Chassid Yaivitz was one of the uh, Spanish Jews who was banished during the expulsion of Jews from Spain in the end of the 15th century. And he says something very deep and powerful. We know the Jews of Spain were offered a very terrible set of options. Either you convert to Christianity and you could stay in Spain and maintain all your wealth and everything, or you leave with nothing. You leave penniless. And we know the Jews, half of them, around half of them, picked up and left. And about half of them stayed and converted. And most of those who stayed and converted, they said, you know what, we'll try to maintain our Judaism in hiding, clandestinely. Those They became known as the Moranos or the Conversos. And of course, the Inquisition was dedicated to try to root out those fake Christians, those people who were secretly behaving as Jews. Which one of those groups made the right decision? So the Chassid Yaivas, again, he's someone who personally had to flee. He said, he says, well, the simple Jews, they said, wait, wait, these people are offering us to convert to Christianity or to stay as Jews. We're leaving. We're not asking questions. Don't overthink the matter. We're out. And the more sophisticated Jews says, well, we have a lot of money here. And well, we think that we're smart enough, we're clever enough to be able to do both. The, the people who were more sophisticated, so to speak, those are the people that had a more difficult time. And many of those people, they actually stayed. Similarly, what do we have? We have Hur. Hur is someone who is almost like he's simple in the story. The Jewish people say, we're going to go to the golden calf. And they have all kinds of reasons why it made sense. Well, he's not, a, he's not an idol. It's a representation of Moses. They have all kinds of justifications for it. And of course, says, wait a minute. Simply, what are we doing? We're doing a golden calf. Don't give me any of your cockamamie, convoluted arguments. I'm not interested. This is a bad idea. I'm out. That sounds like a very simple-minded argument. And you know what? He was killed for it. They're like, no, no, no. It, they, they came with a more sophisticated argument. This is not idolatry. Of course, it eventually became idolatry. But they had all kinds of sophisticated reasons why they wanted it. The Torah tells us, Betzalel, Ben Uri, Ben Chur. That Salah is the grandson of Chur. And you say Chur was unsophisticated? Look at his grandson. His grandson was, there was no one more clever, no one more capable, no one more gifted, no one more talented than Betzalel. He was indeed filled with all kinds of wisdom. Now Rashi points out that we know Betzalel came from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of the monarchy. But Ahaliyav, the son of Ahisamach, he comes from the tribe of Dan. And Dan, out of the 12 tribes, it's one of the four tribes that were from the uh, the other, the secondary wives of Jacob. And Rashi points out that there's a certain equality here between Betzala and, and Ahaliyah, even though one of them comes from the most prestigious of the tribes and the other one comes from maybe the least prestigious of the tribes, but they are equal. The Torah is a meritocracy and therefore – even though one of them has a more prestigious pedigree, it doesn't matter. They're both equal. And this is, I think, a, an important idea uh, that we see again and again in, in, in Jewish history. And in fact, the Rambam points out in his introduction 
to Mishnah that in our history we've had leaders who were the undisputed Torah giants of their era, who were either converts or descendants of converts, like Shmaya Naftali and Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Meir, Unculus, etc. And he stresses this point because this reveals something about the essence of what we stand for. It's a meritocracy. You don't get in for free. You have to earn what you get. And no matter where you come from, you could reach the greatest heights. There was a story of one of the great Torah sages of the pre-war Europe Jewish world whose father was a tailor. So his father was a simpleton and his son became a Torah giant. And he was sitting at a convention with some of the other Torah giants. And they said, okay, each one of us should say a Torah thought, a novel Torah insight in the name of our father. So each one of them comes from a prestigious background. And therefore, they share some sort of beautiful idea from their father. And it comes his turn. And his father was a simple man, a good Jew, but a simple man who was a tailor. So he responds like this. He says, you know, if you have an old garment and you could kind of turn it inside out and try to refresh it, don't fix it like that. It's better to just sew a new garment. That's what he said. That's his lesson from his father. And therefore he responded, he says, listen, that's the lesson I got from my father. And therefore I'm going to follow his advice. I'm not going to churn out some old Torah insight from my father. I'm going to say something new. And therefore, he told him a new insight that he himself had come up with. And that's the way he kind of jimmied in his father's wisdom into his Torah insight. But that indeed is one of the hallmarks of our nation that it's not where you came from. It's not what you have inherited. It's not what was bequeathed to you. It's what you yourself accomplished on your own with your own sweat, toil, and Torah study. Okay, so we have a plan in action. The fundraising has been done. We've assigned Betzalel and Ahaliyah together with all their helpers as the people who are going to do the job. And then we have chapter 36. That's the plan. Betzalel shall carry out with Ahaliyah and every wise-hearted man within whom God has endowed with wisdom and insight. And Moses summoned Betzalel and Ahaliyah and all the wise-hearted men and everyone who was inspired to do the work. And they take all the all the gold and people start bringing tons of gold and silver materials and there's a problem. The, they, the, these wise people who are overseeing and organizing all the material needed, they tell Moshe, we have a problem. The people bring more, more than enough for the labor. So quickly they make an announcement. Moses that they proclaim throughout the camp, man and woman shall not bring any more for – any more gifts towards the sanctuary. And the people were restrained for, for giving and that what they had brought, that was enough to do and even a little bit extra. So this is a fundraiser's dream. You have a certain amount of money you need to raise and you start raising it and the, the, the first day people start showering you with so much gold and silver that you actually have to stop them. It's too much. You got to quickly, quickly. So they ran to Moses. They're overseeing the coffers. People are just coming and pouring, pouring in. Oh, we have to stop it quickly. And they make an announcement throughout the camp. So this, the commentaries point out, this shows their character. You know, this seems like a golden opportunity for a little bit of grift. You know, I'm working on the project. I got pocket a little bit. You know, there's, there's so much extra. And still, what do the people do when there's too much? They run to Moses. There's too much. And what does Moses do? He quickly stops everyone from giving. People are so excited to give, but they have to stop giving because there's there's enough, and we don't want to have any extra. We don't want to pocket anything from our from ourselves. 
Now, there's an amazing insight pointed out uh, by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenesti, who incidentally happens to be my namesake. He points out, he says, you know, at this point in history, the Jewish people are under the impression that they're about to go into the land of Israel. It's only sometime later, about a year later, where the sin of the spies happens in the book of Numbers that mandates that they stay in the wilderness for 40 years. So what's the plan in their eyes right now? In their eyes, the plan is to build a tabernacle and quickly go into Israel, capture the land with Moses, build a permanent temple, and then put away the temporary temple, the Mishnah, the tabernacle, put it away to put that in, to archive that. In their eyes, this was only temporary. Yet, despite the fact that it was temporary, they still had a tremendous gusto, a tremendous drive to donate. Again, it shows us the generosity and the character of these people. Now, it is interesting that in verse 7, we read somewhat of a contradiction, uh, that they stopped doing the fundraising, but the fundraising was enough for all the work, and there was extra. So was it enough, or was there extra? It seems like those two cannot be congruent. If there is enough, then there's it's enough, and if there's extra, then it means there's extra. So there's many answers given. One of the answers, the Archaim tells us that there was a miracle, that the amount of gold and silver and other material that was needed was indeed more. There was extra, but it was enough because it was subsumed in the needed material. Like we said, there's miracles happening everywhere, and one of the miracles is that the gold, so to speak, absorbs some of the extra gold, and therefore there was nothing, there was no extra, even though there was initially extra, it was swallowed up by the other gold, and same was true by the rest of the other material. Okay, so we have everything that we need, and the work begins. So they begin with the various curtains of the tabernacle, and these we already described in great detail in Pasha's Truma. You have uh, the the lower, the, the, the lowest one, uh, uh, the lowest curtain made of 10 curtains, and then you have one on top of that made of goat hair, made of 11 curtains, and then you had one or two more on top of that called the covers of the tent of red-dyed ram hides and tachash hides, and then we have the planks at the side of the tabernacle made of wood. And again, these instructions were given in great detail. You have uh, you have 20 on one side, 20 on the other side, and then six. And these are all one and a half amas, one and a half cubits wide. On the bottom, there's two silver sockets. On top, there's a ring connecting one to the next one. I don't want to go through it because we've spoken about it in, in, in great detail. I'm just going to add things that, are, that we haven't talked about in the past. So one thing I wanted to share uh, from verse 33 is the idea of the middle bar. These are the horizontal bars going alongside the vertical standing planks of wood that make up the wall of the tabernacle. There's horizontal bars that keep it in place. So there's uh, five horizontal bars we read, uh, two on top and two on bottom, and one that goes in the middle, though, that, like we spoke about a few weeks ago. It goes through the actual body of these planks and it swivels around the corners. So it's a really cool kind of thing. It's miraculous that you have this bria this middle bar. It goes from end to end of the tabernacle, the three three walls of the tabernacle. It goes down the 30 amos, the 30 cubits in one side. It turns the corner in middle of the holes through the middle of the planks, and then it turns another corner, so it goes 30, 10, and another 30. Now, 
in Kabbalah, in the Zohar, it tells us that this middle bar is actually representative of our forefather, Jacob. He's the one who, so to speak, unites all the various parts of you know, Abram and Isaac, but also similarly here, he's the one who unites the tabernacle together. Now, according to one of the commentaries, one of the medieval commentaries, it tells us that this middle pole actually has a backstory. This wasn't some sort of new pole. It was an ancient pole that was actually owned by our forefather, Jacob. How so? Well, all the way back in the book of Genesis, after Jacob usurps the blessings from his brother, from his older brother, Esau, Esau wants to kill him. And Jacob gets wind of that, and he travels all the way to Haran to go work for Laban. He arrives at Laban's house, and we read, and we spoke about this a little bit uh, in the book of Genesis, he arrives empty-handed. Why? Because Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau, Esau's son, he was given a message and a mandate from his father, go murder Jacob. So Eliphaz apprehends Jacob, and he says to him, listen, I got to kill you. That's the instructions of, of Esau, my father, and I can't disobey my father. But you're my uncle, Jacob. I kind of like you. I don't want to kill you. So we have an intractable dilemma. So the Talmud tells us that what Jacob said to Eliphaz was that, you know what? The Talmud tells us that if someone is totally destitute, then it's considered as if they're dead. Because they can't be generous with others, in a certain realm, in a certain dimension, it's considered as if they're dead. So you know what? Take all my stuff, take all my possessions, take all my valuables, I'll be rendered a destitute poor person. And therefore, it'll be like you killed me, so you'll fulfill what your father wants, but also you won't actually do any bloodshed, I'll still be alive. That was the agreement. And indeed, Eliphaz takes all his stuff and leaves him with nothing. But later on, in the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, when Jacob returns and he's about to re-encounter Esau, his brother, he prays to God. This time, he's coming after 20 years spending with his father in Laban. He has four wives and 12 children, and he has lots of wealth. And he prays to God and says, For I have crossed this Jordan River with my staff. And our sages tell us all he had was his staff. Because Aliphaz, his nephew, took everything else. And here we find out that Aliphaz did not take everything else. Aliphaz allowed him to maintain his staff. He's like, ah, that is not valuable at all. Says one of the medieval commentaries, you know what that staff is? That staff, that stick, is actually the pole, the same pole that threaded the entire Mishkan, the entire length of the planks of the tabernacle. The thing that Esau said is worthless. The thing that Eliphaz, the son of Esau, said, you know what, that you could keep because you'll still have nothing left. That's precisely the thing that not only is part of the tabernacle, but is that one thing that unites it, that takes all the disparate parts of the tabernacle and unites it together. And then there's another one of the medieval commentaries who adds another wrinkle to this. We know after Jacob, after he had his revelation 
at the site of the Temple Mount. He has, that, of course, that famous dream where he sees the ladder with angels going up and down. Afterwards, he makes a monument. He makes a, an altar and he anoints the altar with oil. He pours oil on the altar. And the same question can be asked. Well, if Aliphaz stole all of his stuff, where did he have oil to pour on top of the altar? So the Paneh Raza, he says that, well, remember Jacob had his staff that Eliphaz did not take with him. Before Jacob had left, he had hollowed out that staff and filled it with oil so he could study Torah along the way. And therefore, what was inside that staff that Eliphaz did not take, that was filled with oil. And that's the oil that he poured on top of the altar. So this is an amazing thing. Like we spoke about a few weeks ago, the wood beams that were eventually made into the planks of wood, of shittim wood, that are going to be make up the walls of the tabernacle, those wood, that, that, that wood was planted by Jacob in Egypt. And the thing, that pole, that middle bar that threaded it was the same exact staff that Jacob had held with him, that Jacob had filled with oil to study Torah along the way. Jacob is fleeing from his life. And what's he worried about? How do I fill up my staff so I can have a light uh, to take with me to study Torah along the way? This is something that Jacob had that was his self-sacrifice. He was committed towards Torah study, so to speak. And this is the one thing that earns its spot in the place where God rests his Shekhinah, God rests his divine presence amongst the Jewish people. And maybe the lesson from this is that uh, our sages have told us, Reb Chaim Velazhner amongst others, that really when we read about the Mishkan, it's a certain model that is emblematic of what we need to build within ourselves, a edifice for God within our hearts. Every person has to build within themselves, a certain edifice to God, akin to the tabernacle. What are the things that are going to ensure continuity, perpetuation, eternality towards the spiritual edifice, the tabernacle in our heart? What's that thing? Those are the things that are akin to Jacob's staff, the thing that binds it all together, the things that he committed self-sacrifice, Mesiris Nefesh, those are the things that ensure that it will last. And I think it's a good lesson more broadly. If we want to have a certain spiritual legacy that will be lasting, the things that are maybe difficult for us to do, and we do anyhow, we muster up the the courage and the self-determination and self-sacrifice to do it. That's the way to, so to speak, bring God into our hearts and to create for ourselves an eternal spiritual legacy. An amazing lesson that we could derive here from the construction of the tabernacle. So after the walls of the tabernacle are done and the covers are done, the partitions are made, the various screens are made. And then chapter 37, we read about the various vessels of the tabernacle and it begins with the ark. So 37 begins, Ptolemy, the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. These are, again, the same dimensions we read about a few weeks ago. Now, the commentaries uh, point out that it does mention that Betzal made them, whereas, you know, we know Betzal made all of this. Why specifically does it mention Betzal here with respect to the Ark? 
So Rashi says, and this is maybe somewhat uh, dovetailing nicely with what we just said a little bit earlier, the reason why it says that Betzalel made it, because Betzalel, he committed his soul for the work. Therefore, even though everyone else made it together with him, but who does the Torah label, who does the Torah give eternal credit to? It gives it to Betzalel because he, more than anyone else, was totally committed towards the project. And a nice lesson can emerge from that is the things that we truly own spiritually are the things that we really put our heart into. The Ramban, he says something interesting. He says, no, unlike Rashi, who says that, yes, everyone made it, but Betzal committed himself to it more than anyone else. The Ramban says that, no, actually, Betzal himself made it. And then says the Ramban something very important. He says, actually, if you were to compare the various vessels as to the degree of difficulty of construction, you would say that maybe the easiest one to do is the ark. It's essentially a box. How hard is that to make, right? It doesn't seem like it's very difficult. It seems quite to the contrary. It seems kind of easy. And yet, Betzalel is the one that does it. Says the Ramban, why did Betzalel himself do it? Not because it was difficult to construct physically, but because it was difficult to construct spiritually. What was really needed was not expertise, or not only expertise in craftsmanship, what was needed expertise in, so to speak, spiritual craftsmanship. And this is the idea like we saw in the past, that when someone is constructing something for the tabernacle, there's a certain idea that they're trying to infuse within it that is the spiritual baseline of that particular vessel. And that's what Betzalel himself, because this ark is the most spiritually difficult one to make, therefore he's the one who made it. We read about the Ark, uh, the cover of the Ark with the magical, magnificent, swiveling cherubs, uh, the table with its gold crown around it, the menorah with all its intricacies, the incense altar, that's the inner altar, a term called the golden altar. It's somewhat confusing. There's the outer altar, which, which is really big, made out of wood and plated with copper. And then you have the inner altar, which is made out of wood, but plated in gold. It's much smaller. And that was used for incense every day, twice, and only uh, on Yom Kippur was anything else done to it. 38 begins with the making of the outer altar, which is called over here the elevation offering altar. Again, it's made out of wood. It's much bigger. There's horns, which are like these little bumps, uh, like on top of a castle, you would uh, imagine. Um, it's it's square, and then, of course, it has a ramp leading up to it, not steps like we read a few weeks ago. It has all its paraphernalia, pots, shovels, basins, forts, fire pans, all that are made out of copper. There's a meshwork, which is a design uh, going alongside the body of the outer altar, and there are reams. In the reams, there are staves, there are poles. And then we read about the kior, which is the water basin that you use to wash your hands and your feet. Now, what was the kior made out of? So the Torah says, from the mirrors of the legions who massed at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's made out of mirrors. And Rashi points out this is actual mirrors. And what's the backstory of this mirrors? So Rashi tells us something very fascinating, an interesting dialogue that happened over here. The daughters of Israel, they would look in these mirrors when they would put on their makeup. And when the call came to donate all these materials, they came with their gold and silver and everything, but also with these mirrors. And Moshe, of course, knew what this was used for. 
These are used by women to make themselves beautiful. And what is, what's the reason for that? Well, that's to inspire the Eid Sahara. So Moses says, no, 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 this is not can't be used in the tabernacle. This is something that Moses was disgusted by. This is not fitting for the Mishkan because this is what it's used for. And God responds to him, no, 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 you take it. Because you know why? These mirrors are the most beloved to me. Why? Because through these mirrors, the women were able to spawn legions of the Jewish people. Because the men, after all, when they were slaves in Egypt, they were exhausted. They, they were almost on the brink of, of, of dying every day. You can't procreate under those conditions. But the women, they would make themselves beautiful and they would entice and arouse their husbands using these mirrors. And therefore, these mirrors, says God to Moses, these mirrors are the ones that are most precious to me and there is no better candidate for being used in the temple than these mirrors. Now, it's interesting. The commentaries question, you know, Moses is willing to accept all kinds of personal items from women, uh, various rings and rings, the one in the nose and bracelets. And even uh, in verse um, 22 of chapter 35, even various ornaments that were worn by women in their, like near their private area, near their genitalia. And here Moshe is not taking the mirrors. It seems, uh, it seems a little bit inconsistent. So the Ramban answers, he says, well, the various gold ornaments, those things were all melted together and therefore it became one big pot. So it doesn't matter what the origin of the gold was, whereas the mirrors are going to be used as is and therefore Moses felt that it's not appropriate. Uh, mirrors that were used for women to beautify themselves, that's not appropriate to be used in the tabernacle. I think it's something that's it's worthwhile to ponder a little bit over here. You know, we see polar opposite responses to these mirrors. On one hand, Moses, he's disgusted by it. He says, this is this is not a good candidate. This is used for the Yitzhahara. And God responds with the absolute extreme argument. Not only is he not disgusted by it, he says, there's nothing better than this. This is the best. And I think it's it's kind of puzzling. How is it possible that Moses and God have such diametrically opposed positions on this matter. How's it possible that Moses is like, this is disgusting. This is terrible. This is used for the Yitzhahara. This is used for the evil inclination. This is not something that should be used in, in, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. And God says, no, no, no. This is the best thing. This is the most desirable thing in my eyes. What's, in fact, the disagreement? So I want to suggest maybe an answer based on the Talmud in the book of Sot on page 17a. The Talmud says uh, that a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, if they are meritorious, if zahu shechina b'nei, then the shechina is amongst them. If they are meritorious, the shechina is amongst them. However, if they are not meritorious, a fire will consume them. Says Rashi, what does this mean? The word ish means man, and the word isha means woman. And both of them have the same letters aleph shin, which is ish, which means fire. But the man has Aleph Yud Shin, and the word woman has Aleph Shin Hey, and the letters Yud and Hey, they're the name of God. Therefore, when a man and a woman are in their idealized situation, God is amongst them. You have the name of God. Whereas if you withdraw the name of God, 
you take the yud away from the man and the hay away from the woman, you have ash and ash, you just have fire. Their names, when God is removed from them, is just it just means fire. So what does this mean? So our sages explain to us that what this means is that a man and a woman in their most intimate relationship, if they are meritorious, then God is amongst them. That union can be the most spiritual acme, pinnacle of human experience. God's amongst them. The Shekhinah is amongst them. That's if they're meritorious. Whereas if they're not meritorious, that same union, all you have is fire. Which means a very powerful idea. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination that's there to spur us towards sin, really that really depends on the context. If they're meritorious, then that union, that thing that could have been a sin, well, actually, it was a representation of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is amongst them. That very same union, if it's devoid, if it's been denuded of God's presence, all you have is the fire of the evil inclination of the Yetzirah. Both God and Moses, so to speak, when they saw these mirrors, they saw the Yetzirah. They saw the evil inclination. They saw the passion, the arousal, the lust, the licentiousness of marital intimacy. Moses is like, well, this is not has no place in the in in the tabernacle. This is the Eight Sahara. What is this doing over here? It doesn't belong. And God says, quite the contrary. There is nothing more desirable for me because in the way that they did it, in the efforts that they took to bring the Jewish people to where they are today, a mighty nation, a nation worthy of accepting the Torah, that was actually a variety of marital union that is meritorious. And therefore, God is amongst them, the Shekhinah is amongst them. And indeed, in the Mishkan, in the Tabernacle, you're trying to bring God, you're trying to bring the presence of God, the Shekhinah, there is no better candidate to do that than those mirrors that symbolized a union of husband and wife when they are indeed meritorious and God and God's Shekhinah is amongst them. The Parsha concludes with the construction of the courtyard, which is the surrounding area of the courtyard in which the Mishkan was held. And then there's the screen at the entrance of the Mishkan and thus concludes the Parsha. Netri's Parsha is again going to be a lot of familiar topics related not to the construction of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and of its vessels, rather to the embroiderment of the various garments needed for the high priest. And next week is going to be indeed the last Parsha of the book of Exodus.